Hi, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Monday, October 29th, 2018, and I'm Sarah O, Research Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Today, we're excited to talk with Patrick Warren, who has a PhD in economics from MIT and is now an associate professor of economics at Clemson University. Patrick studies how organizations work, including companies, bureaucracies, parties, even armies. Patrick's collection of peer-reviewed articles and academic journals shows the appeal of his work to economists, but something else has put him in the public eye these days. Specifically, he has become a leading authority on the impact of internet trolls on elections, which is obviously of huge importance as we head into the midterms. His work is based on a data set of about 3 million troll tweets that he and his co-author Darren Linville downloaded and have made available to everyone via the 538 website. We'll talk about this and more on today's podcast. I am joined today by Scott Walston, TPI Senior Fellow and President. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to talk about my work. Yeah, so tell us about your work on internet trolls. We're especially interested in work that's empirically based and with 3 million tweets that you downloaded and analyzed, yours is more empirical than almost any other analysis of what's been going on. So tell us what you did and what you found to start off with. Sure. So practically a year ago now, the House Intelligence Committee released a list of about 2,500 Twitter accounts that Twitter had identified as being operated by the Internet Research Agency. So the Internet Research Agency is a private entity in St. Petersburg, Russia, that does work almost exclusively for the Russian government. And they had been working domestically, mostly, but had there was some good evidence that they were involved in intervening in basically our domestic political conversation. When you say they were operating mostly domestically, do you mean domestically here or domestically in Russia? No, I'm going to call them the IRA. I know that's confusing. Uh, the IRA began their work, targeted social media in Russia, in Russian. So okay. their work began trying to push basically the administrative line to a domestic audience in Russia. And only when that was successful did they expand westward. Okay. So they began in Russia. They talk a lot about the Ukraine, but our study is looking about their impact in the United States. Okay. So Twitter had identified about 2,500 accounts and provided a list of those accounts to Congress, and Congress then released that list. By that point, all of those accounts had been shut down by Twitter, and their tweets were no longer available on the platform. But some enterprising folks had been able to look back various websites that archive the internet, like the Wayback Machines, what it used to be called now, I think it's called archive.org. And through that, they were able to sort of recover some of the tweets, but a very small fraction. And here at Clemson, we actually have access to a platform that has a more complete archive of Twitter. And using that platform, we were able to dig up basically all the tweets from those accounts, stretching way back, some of them all the way back to 2009. And so we started digging now, that platform's not made really for this. It's made more to sort of monitor your own social media presence and do social media operations like for firms, but it does have this archive. And so we were able to slowly 
for sort of tweaking the system here and there, uncover all of the tweets by those 2,500 accounts. And then in June this year, Twitter expanded that list. They added another 1,000 names. And so we started digging again. And in the end, we ended up with about 3 million tweets from mm-hmm. about 3,500 accounts. And what did you do with them? Right. So first we read them. My poor co-author read them all. <laughs> I, I'm lucky wow. I was the data jockey here and he did most of the reading. And so obviously we didn't read every character of every tweet, but enough to categorize the accounts. So basically these 3,500 accounts are not all the same. It's not like some great sort of homogenous troll army. They are very specialized. And so step one was to try to understand what sorts of accounts were out there. And so Darren, and and I helped, but he did the brunt. This is Darren Linville, my co-author. He did the brunt of this. Reading through these tweets and categorizing the accounts into one of basically four or five types. There's basically left-wing trolls and right-wing trolls, and I'll I'll talk more about what. uh, Mm -hmm. And then there are local news accounts. These are accounts that purport to be in Baltimore and aggregating local news in Baltimore or in Washington or in Seattle. There's 38 of these for cities across the United States. So that's the second sort. We call them sort of local news feed accounts. And then there was a fourth kind of account that played the hashtag game. Are you familiar with the hashtag game? Uh, I know what hashtags are, but I don't know the hashtag game. So the hashtag game is a social media game where it is announced in advance that we'll all get together at 6 p.m. on Wednesday and we'll play the hashtag game. And here's how the hashtag game works. Someone's in charge. They will announce a hashtag like hashtag rejected debate topics. And then everyone who's playing the game will basically send out their own sort of funny takes on that hashtag. So if the hashtag is hashtag rejected debate topics, your funny take might be, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich or not? Yeah. It's like a hashtag flash mob. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, And then, you know, people, if they think your take is funny, they'll retweet it or like it or whatever. So this seems like an odd thing for trolls to do. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit, why, why they were doing that. But this was sort of the fourth sort of troll. They played the hashtag game. And then there were about a million. So those four categories were the biggest four categories. And then there were about a million tweets that we couldn't categorize because they weren't in English and I don't speak Russian. Mm-hmm. And so of the three million, about a million were in other languages, the largest of which was Russian. Mm-hmm. So we just, for analysis that we released in this paper, we just put those to the side because we didn't feel qualified to analyze those. So once we broke them up into these categories, the question was, well, under what circumstances are each of these account types being used the most? And how do they respond both to each other and to events in the world? And so we took sort of a 30,000 foot view of the output of these accounts in order to trace when they were most active, and if that varied by account type, and how they reacted to events in the world. So that's mostly what the paper's about, is what are these account types, when are they active, and how are they different or the same? Try to understand in very broad strokes, like what's the strategy behind this basically propaganda operation? So these four types, they're all from IRA, right? Oh, yes. The same operator might run accounts of all four types. So having the four types is part of their strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what do you think the overall strategy is? So I think that the overall strategy, it shifted. It seemed to shift over time. I think at first the strategy was clearly just to sort of sow unrest 
so division. I think that it's pretty obvious that they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election, and they just wanted to sort of sow the ground to make that win and her administration unstable at the beginning. But then over time, it became clear that this was going to be a closer fight maybe than they thought. And so they started to basically play both sides, play the right, play the left, and play both sides against the middle. And what do I mean by that? So let me let me talk about one of the let me talk about one of the two left wing right troll sorry left wing right wing kind of accounts. So mm-hmm. the left troll accounts were basically extremist left wing Democrat accounts. So not a lot of sort of centrist policy proposals or support for centrist Democrats. This was like there were a lot of accounts that were quite divisive and extreme. What do I mean? I mean, certainly the most common sort of account on the left wing were fake Black Lives Matter accounts. And they were accounts that were basically pushing not just not even a sort of mainstream Black Lives Matter view, but sort of the left extreme of Black Lives Matter. Like, well, let's just burn down the holes. Mm-hmm. And similarly on the right. So there were no, you know, there were no accounts that were tweeting mostly about, you know, reasonable tax policy. No, the right wing accounts, they were all about like, we need to shut down the borders immediately, kick out everybody who doesn't look like me. Let's, if we don't kick all them out first, they're going to kick all us out. Very extreme sort of right wing accounts. And in both cases, they were very, both the left wing accounts and the right wing accounts were very dismissive of the other side, but also of the middle of their own side. Does that make sense? Now, who do you think, who are they actually targeting? I mean, were the right-wing accounts trying to rile up sort of like, say, centrist, you know, center-left people who, you know, would think that this was becoming, you know, a more prevalent view on the right, or and, you know, exactly vice versa, that people on the right would see these extreme left-wing tweets, and it would make them think that the left has become more extreme, or was it designed to kind of get these people, find people who might have these extreme views, and make them more active? So I think both, and a lot of this is just, you know, inference. But if you look at the activities and the way that they act and the times that they act, it's clear that they're trying to bring in real Americans. Mm-hmm. And you see this actually in the most active day of all. So if you look through the whole three, we have basically three years worth of data. If you look through the whole three years, the most active day is October 6th of 2016. And on that day, it's the left-wing trolls that are the most active. So that day is that was a very busy weekend. I don't know if you remember this weekend on 2016. This was the weekend that WikiLeaks released John Podesta's emails, but that uh-huh. was also the weekend that the Access Hollywood tape came out. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a very busy political weekend, and it was also the weekend that the first sort of official intelligence assessment of the Russian interference in the election happened. So it was just a crowded weekend. But the first thing that happened on that weekend, which was October 6th, was the most active day of the IRA trolls in our whole data period. So before any of the rest of this happened, what happened was the Twitter trolls went crazy. And specifically, the left trolls went crazy. And we think that this was in anticipation of the WikiLeaks announcement that they knew was coming. And if you look at what they're doing, they're not talking about the WikiLeaks 
announcement. Obviously, they can't do that because it hasn't happened yet. And mm-hmm. so that would sort of give up the game. What they're doing, actually, is they're doing a lot of retweeting and tagging of people who you could pretty much anticipate were going to react very badly to the WikiLeaks release. People who were strong supporters of Bernie, who sort of felt mm-hmm. like Hillary had probably gotten an unfair advantage in the primary process, and were sort of very out about being suspicious of her as a Democratic candidate. And so you, mm-hmm. you want to rile those folks up on the day before and leading into the day where the Podesta emails were released in order to get basically the reaction that you want when they're released. That's, That's our fascinating. story. Actually, the distinction between retweeting and actually tweeting content. So if a retweet is magnifying a real human's voice, but it's a false retweet, that has a different kind of impact than just misinformation. Absolutely. So I actually don't think there's a whole lot of what you might call straight up fake news in here at all. Yeah. I don't really like I don't really like the term fake news, but in terms of like just whole cloth false claims, there's not a lot of those actually in the IRA data. If you look very early, there's an account type that I didn't talk about because they basically quit doing it. But there was an account type that we referred to as the fearmonger account. And what they did is that they exactly did that. They invented fake disasters and tried to get people agitated about them. <laughs> but it didn't work. Basically, they used about, I think they had about 30 accounts that they created and used to try to gin up a fake salmonella outbreak coming up on Thanksgiving of 2015. They invented this outbreak at Coke Farms, which is a real farm in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And the claim was that there was salmonella in the turkeys and that the turkeys were sold to Walmart and that, oh, I just got sick and my whole family got sick. So watch out for these turkeys. Okay. So totally made up. First of all, Coke Farms, it does exist, but they don't sell turkeys to Walmart. If you look back at the sort of CDC records, there were no salmonella outbreaks of this type at this time. And... They were blaming it all on the Koch brothers, which, of course, is totally unrelated to Coke Farms. It's a totally different Coke. But this didn't work. Nobody picked up the, like, hashtag Coke Farm hashtag. The accounts got shut down very quickly because Twitter realized that there was these false narrative that was all getting created by these accounts. It just doesn't work. They found over time that it was a lot easier, it was a lot more effective to basically try to inject themselves or burnish the reputation of already existing claims that were not purely false, but were misleading. And so we see both those moves over time. They quit trying to make up their own story. Instead, they start pushing stories that other people have pushed, and they quit trying to do it themselves. Rather, they try to bring people who would otherwise be sort of at the periphery of the conversation to the middle. So if what was successful for them was not trying to spread explicit misinformation, but if somehow it was rooted in some kernel or grain of truth or made it sound like an opinion, how do the platforms go about identifying things like this? I mean, in this case, you were able to tell that it came from the IRA, but is it always about looking for the source rather than the content? I mean, it's difficult. We know a little bit about how Twitter identified these accounts. I mean, I mentioned an example where they shut down some accounts that likely had to do with the content. But there's no way that that's how they identified the accounts 
later on because they weren't tweeting things that no one else was tweeting, right? They were basically mm-hmm. things that were already being pushed. They identify them through network-related things, I suspect. So we know that the IRA set up virtual private networks in the United States and used those to sort of bounce their signal so it wasn't clear that they were coming from St. Petersburg. It's likely that they had a finite number of those that they could use. And so I suspect that over time, Twitter sussed them out. And that's how they identified these accounts. That works, but only sort of after the fact. And it's a technological solution. Presumably, there's a technological workaround for the propagandist as well. I'm not an expert in the technology of the internet. And so I don't know the degree to which that's a sustainable strategy for stopping these things. I just don't know. So the next part of this is you're measuring the inputs into sewing Discord. Is there evidence that it had the desired effect? We have no such evidence. Uh-huh. It's an open question, and it's sort of a million-dollar question. Mm-hmm. I have some ideas about how you would go about trying to suss that out, but it's hard. Usually when we do these scientific or quasi-science, whatever we do in economics, if you want to call it science, uh, <laughs> we like to have a treatment group and a control group, right? Sort of people that were affected by or touched by the trolls, and then those that weren't touched by the trolls. But in something like Twitter, it's so hard to define control. So like, who were the accounts, or where were the places, or what were the times that didn't get touched by this? That's the biggest challenge in trying to understand. We like to run sort of diff and diff regressions, right? But I don't know what the Mm -hmm. first diff is. Like, I can do before and after, but who's control and who's treatment? Right. And it's hard. So you could ask smaller questions that are not quite the question you want to answer, which is like, do the people that were mentioned by the trolls start to talk differently after they were mentioned by the trolls than they did before they were mentioned by the trolls compared to, I don't know, randomly selected Twitter users or randomly selected politically engaged Twitter users? But there's no guarantee that those randomly selected engaged Twitter users were not directly or indirectly affected by the troll operation. You know, Mm -hmm. it's hard. I would love to answer that question. I mean, obviously, the reason you get into this is try to answer that question. But I'm still not convinced that there's a valid sort of identification strategy to answer. Well, we tried actually to look into your data as well. So we have a data set of 10,000 U.S. households and their Internet behavior between 2016 and 2017. And so we searched whether any of them engaged with the tweets in your data set. And we couldn't find any, but at the same time, out of 100 million households who could possibly see these tweets, we only had 10,000 households. So again, it's hard to tell if even that is a measure of influence. Like, who's to say that one retweet at the beginning of somebody's Twitter feed would cascade into something else? So you got to remember what I decided their sort of later strategy is. My co-author and I always joke that it's not really about the words. So I think what they were trying to do on October 6th had nothing to do with the words that they said. I think it had everything to do with trying to get people who would say the words they wanted said into the middle of the conversation. So just looking at the tweets that the trolls tweeted might miss the point. If they can get the first Black Lives Matter account that you see on Twitter or that you think of when you think of Black Lives Matter to be one standard deviation more extreme than it would have been without their interaction, then that's an effect. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of effect that we think they're trying to have. 
they want to make the left seem more extreme than they really are and the right seem more extreme than they really are. And that's not through their words. That's the way they can try to move people around in the network structure and also try to get people to be more engaged and active than they would otherwise be. Certain people. Do you think, I mean, Twitter doesn't track very much, at least to the extent that it's possible that people outside Twitter can get the information. Is this something that um, like just retweets and likes also would not capture? Well, you get retweets and likes of whom? Of the original tweets by the trolls. No, I don't think so. So there's like two versions of the story, but let me tell the simplest one. The simplest Mm -hmm. one is, why am I active on Twitter? I'm active on Twitter because I like to sort of interact with people and see what people are doing. But why do I tweet? I think it's usually because I have some message I want to share. And when am I most active on Twitter? And I think I'm most active when I'm sort of getting some give and take. So, you know, I tweet something. If nobody responds to it, well, that doesn't really spur me to do much. But if I tweet and I get like two responses and a retweet, well, maybe I'll keep talking about that thing. We think that that's part of what they're doing. They're trying to sort of spur the right sort of people from their perspective to be active. And so what would I like if I'm trying to measure that effect? I need to see not how many people like the trolls tweet, but rather I need to see how many tweets do you get from people who the trolls retweet and like. Mm -hmm. It's sort of... We're calling it right now second order agenda setting. It's not about the words. It's about the people. Now, at this point, this is at the level of a hypothesis because the data requirements for answering this question is much more significant than the data requirements to answer the question that I laid out in the paper that I sent to you. Mm -hmm. And that's just purely descriptive. Like, what are these guys doing? But now we get to the question of, like, what impact did it have? Obviously, that's a much harder question. And it's subtle here, right? I think. Actually, it would be a very big data question. So for every retweet from one of these trolls, you follow the activity of every person that they retweeted. But I'll <laughs> lay out a strategy and now somebody's going to steal it, but it's fine. I just wanted <laughs> it to get out there. So I think the idea would be you would go and look at the, I don't know, thousand most retweeted liked and we can't do likes actually in our data, but the most retweeted and mentioned accounts by the trolls. We can do that. And then for each of them, you find a kind of control account, which is, you know, similar in some way. Maybe they're base followers or whatever. But to think about that, that's always the hard part. And then you ask sort of what is the activity rate of those that got burnished by the trolls as compared to those that didn't. And then you might also ask, a simpler question, which is like, are the sorts that got burnished by the trolls, are they selective about that? Are they picking the right sorts of accounts for that? We need both those things to be true for my story to work, right? It's got to work. It's got to happen that if I interact with you a lot, you become more active. And it's also got to happen that the ones they interact with are the ones that are doing what I claim they're trying to do, which is make the left and the right seem more extreme than they really are. That's how you do it. But yeah, there's a lot of data requirements for sure. We could do it with our data. We have some grant proposals in to try to get some more help. Right now, it's like Darren and I on a shoelace. Yeah, people, I don't think, understand how resource-intensive it is to do big data work or really any kind of empirical work. Well, you got to remember that you can't actually use the Twitter API to do this. You have to use this Social Studio archive that we have, and it's not made for this. And so you can't just pull like 400,000 tweets given some search algorithm. Like it's not made to do that. And so there's a lot of sort of grunt 
to that sort of gathering tweets from this database. And so, yeah, it's hard. What do you think, I don't know, this may not be something you know, but what's your impression of how successful the trolls think they've been? I mean, at least in terms of whether it's continuing, whether they sort of change their hosts, or are they trying to keep going? So um, I can tell and, you a couple things. So one thing to note is that we have like a big selection problem here. So our 3,500 accounts are the ones that Twitter caught and shut down. <laughs> and so if you just graph out sort of the tweets by these guys, you'll see that they all fall off a lot at the end of 20, uh, sort of mid-2018. I think that's probably totally selection. I doubt they're less mm-hmm. active. It's just that we don't have all of them that were happening then. And my evidence for that is the following. Two pieces. One, there were more tweets by these trolls in the year after the election than there were in the year before. So this is not like an election thing. Then they were done. No, they were more active after the election. Why? Because I think they thought they were pretty successful in the election. The second piece of evidence I have is that become more effective over time. So I told you about those fear monger accounts that didn't work at all. Well, if you track for over time how quickly these accounts pick up followers, both in terms of per day and in terms of per action, or you might think of an action as like a tweet or a retweet or whatever, they get a lot better over time. So these guys are getting better at picking up followers. I mean, you need followers for any of this stuff, right? They're getting better at picking up followers, which suggests to me that they're becoming more effective. They reveal that they are willing to invest more effort over time because we see more tweets over time. I mean, if you're doing more and you're becoming more productive, I don't know why you'd stop, but we can't see. I'll say this. We're tracking a number of accounts that still exist and are still tweeting. Darren and I strongly believe are run by the IRA, but we don't have the resources that you would need to prove that sort of beyond a reasonable doubt because it's a lot of the sort of behind the scenes internet traffic stuff is what you'd really need. And we don't obviously don't have access to that. Well, so recognizing that maybe you can't identify this with statistical significance, do you observe increased activity leading up to next week's midterm elections? Compared to what? I guess sort of trending over the last, I don't know, let's say year. So there's this regime change. So when Twitter released the list in June of this year, they shut down a whole set of accounts. So we can Mm -hmm. track those accounts, but they all disappear. And then we sort of slowly collect some accounts that we were able to find, but it's not really a comparable set. So the set that we were able to find, and again, we're talking about the order of 20 accounts, not on the order of 2,000. And I don't think that's because there's only 20 accounts. I think it's because that's all we can find. Though I don't know. They look a lot like the old IRA troll accounts that got shut down. They're super effective, just like the tail end of these sort of what we're calling fourth generation troll accounts were. They're actually not talking about the election that much. They're doing the same sorts of stuff that the other trolls were doing, which is pulling people in, trying to make the world look more extreme than it really is. But I can't say for sure that as a unit, the IRA is more or less active than it was a month ago. I can only see those accounts. Those accounts are more active. But it's a small part, I suspect, of what the IRA is up to. It seems like one of the four group types of accounts, the local news accounts, would seem to be pretty well suited to dealing with congressional elections. Yeah, so they're like, I don't know about the most mysterious, but they remain quite mysterious, like what those accounts were up to. Mm -hmm. So if you go and look at those accounts in detail, you'll see that they are not tweeting even borderline fake news. Like they are tweeting legitimate local news 
the whole time. So let's take one like Baltimore Online. What does it do? It pulls news from a handful of legitimate local news sources in Baltimore, newspapers, local TV, that sort of thing. And it just pulls that content, headlines basically, sometimes with links to the original, sometimes not with links to the original. It just tweets it. That's it. That's all it does. And so that leaves this question, like it's not saying things that are false. It's not trying to push very extremist agenda in any obvious way. If you look and see if it's like tweeting more about Trump or Clinton, not really. It seems pretty innocuous. And so that leaves a mystery. There were 600,000 tweets by these accounts. Like, what were they doing? Do we have some ideas? One thing that we've done is that we've compared the sorts of things they tweet about to those local sources that they're pulling from. And it is the case that they do not tweet a balanced selection of those local news accounts. So there are some topics that they seem to really like. And it's not necessarily ones you think about. So it's not Trump versus Clinton. It's not like they always retweet the Trump stuff and never the Clinton stuff or vice versa or positive Trump. It's none of that. What we see is that they are significantly more likely to retweet, not retweet, but to tweet stories that are violent. So if a headline has the word shooting in it, they're about twice as likely to include it as the source material would indicate. So shooting, for instance, if you looked in all of the sources, source material for these local accounts, about one and a half percent of the headlines would have the word shooting in it. But in the Baltimore Online Troll account, it's more like 3%. Is that big? I don't know. It's twice as big from one point of view. From the other point of view, it's like only another one and a half percent. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. You can't get too big, right? Because then it might be obvious. Mm-hmm. Murder, violence, those sorts of things. Now, this is preliminary. This is just in the couple of months leading up to the election. We would like to do more trying to uncover what these accounts are up to. We got another grant proposal in to try to look at that. <laughs> but um, based on what you've seen, it seems like it's intended to make people think society is less stable. Exactly than it right. Actually, is they do not like sort of stable institutions. We have another study that is under review right now, looking just at the couple of months before the election, and the left attacks the right, the right attacks the left for sure, but they both attack institutions. So like nobody trusts the media. The IRA doesn't trust the media no matter if it's the left rolls or the right rolls. They don't really trust sort of courts. They don't really trust science. Institutions, not popular on either side of the IRA sort of troll continuum. And it's a big part of what they do, more than I think people realize. So that actually ties into your research. I mean, most of your other research is on various types of institutions and how they function. Are you worried about the potential effects of these trolls on our various institutions? Am I worried? No. I mean, back when when Russia was the Soviet Union, they did some of this too, right? So there was like, they would fund sort of un- anti-institution protests in the United States even then. Is this a particularly dangerous time? I mean, trust in institutions is down. It's hard to know which is the cart and which is the horse. Like, are they attacked? I don't know. Am I worried? You're not lying awake at night. I sleep okay. (laughs) I think it's an interesting question to look at. I think it would be a surprise if they could have a big impact on their own, if there weren't 
already attacks on institutions happening in the United States. I think that they can take advantage of situations. And I hope that we set our affairs in order first. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's tough to know. From your um, empirical work, do you have a sense for how many other like sleeper cells there are? Like how many other legitimate looking Twitter accounts are just retweeting news that might have, I don't know, long term plans to statistically become 2% more violent, you know? I mean, this was the claim about the IRA accounts. Like a lot of folks couldn't figure out what they were up to and said, well, maybe they were just sleepers and they were going to put them into action later on if they hadn't gotten caught and shut down. And I guess that's possible, but it's a long time to leave them asleep. I mean, they were operating for years. It just seems like if we couldn't find anything that they were doing, then I guess you'd have to fall back on that answer. But I think they can be both. I think they could both be biasing news today and also be ready in case. Mm -hmm. Are there other sorts of things like that? I don't know. There are a lot of local news aggregators. We demand this like extremely high level of privacy on Twitter and we're kind of okay with it, which I mean, whatever, it's the market. People can decide what they want. But like in Washington, D.C., there's probably, you guys are in D.C., right? Mm -hmm. There's probably 10 to 20 major news aggregators for D.C. where it's like not clear at all who runs them or what they're doing on Twitter right now. (laughs) And like they have thousands of followers. I mean, not millions. But a lot. And like, are some of those operated by sort of propaganda arms of foreign governments? I don't know. We found Iranian ones and Russian ones so far, but we haven't even been looking that hard, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, based on some questions about privacy as well. So the trade off between having private information or should every Twitter user be an authorized person? It's kind of interesting how the different platforms have drawn that line and how they've changed over time. So Facebook used to be, like when it got started, there was no anonymity at all, hardly, right? I mean, like you had to sign up with your university email and you had to put your real name right there on your Facebook thing. And then they added groups and those could be kind of anonymous. And then you didn't have to have a university. You could have some other email and Slowly, they've sort of trickled down to as much anonymity as Twitter has. It's interesting. I wonder if the market, it must be, the market drives it that way. I'm just surprised. And I wonder, that might just be, you could imagine a world where the market demands verification. It could change. I mean, also, there seems to be demand for anonymity and for identification. And it's hard for them to square that. So I have two young children. And like... The internet that I grew up on was way, even way more anonymous than this one. Like nobody used their name when I was young on the internet. And my kids are fine. Like they don't want that sort of anonymity, I don't think. And I'm sort of happier with them on a system that wouldn't have that anonymity. But, you know, it has advantages. Like if you're in a repressive regime, you probably want anonymity. Right. It's hard. We may be rethinking sort of that balance, I think, over time. We as a, I don't mean as a government, I mean as consumers. So we're like way off my research now. This is just me. (laughs) Well, so since we are off your research, let me ask a question. I'm a little hesitant to ask it because I'm afraid of creating a a false comparison, false equivalency. And yet I'll just ask you anyway. You said that the IRA, they started just as a Russian operate, I mean, an internal Russian operation where they tried to push the administrative line in Russia. 
So at what point does a group like that become trolls versus sort of pushing the government line? I mean, every federal agency has a Twitter account, and some of them are all about saying how great everything that they want to do is. And others pay PR firms to take care of their social media. And that's propaganda, too. Sure. I mean, the line that Twitter claims to draw, anyway, is if you're lying about who you are. Hmm, okay. If I'm the Twitter account of the Department of Homeland Security, then fine. Says it right there. I kind of know what I'm getting from the... But if I say that I'm like a young mother of three who's trying to get by in Baltimore, but really I'm in, say, Petersburg, then that's another thing. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. Part of it. Thank. Did, I mean, I know you said you didn't look at the tweets in Russian, but were they doing that right from the beginning, pretending to be someone else? Well, I mean, they certainly weren't labeling themselves as working for the administration. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, these are not the tweets that I look at, but just from my reading on what the IRA was up to, they would just go on blogs or like the social media platforms in Russia, and they would post as Russians, probably not with their real names, but I think that Putin's doing a great job. Or, you know, I really don't trust this uh, what was his name? Nemov? Anyway, the major alternative to Putin. Oh, uh-huh. And that's it. And so they weren't pretending to be someone they're not in the sense that they were pretending to be a Russian person, they were a Russian person, but they were doing this on the clock, and I don't think they were clear about that. So I think we're out of time. Well, thanks for your interest. I'm happy to talk about trolls all day. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us. I thought that was really interesting. Thanks, and we look forward to more Twitter research. Sounds like that would be an agenda that'll last a long time. We're working on it. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you so much, Patrick. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Bye.